Hello and welcome to the Adult Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on Online Meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to introduce our speaker, Suzanne, from Helena, Montana. Good evening, everybody. My name is Suzanne. I'm an adult child as well as a recovering alcoholic and a compulsive overeater. I currently live in Helena, Montana, but I grew up in Wyoming. I have five younger sisters and one adult daughter who's 27, the surprise love and light of my life. I never know what I'm gonna say when I speak at these recovery meetings, but before I do, I always ask my higher power to place the words in my mouth for his spirit to speak through me and to help me share the language of the heart. This was advice I got from a sponsor in early recovery when I asked her how I could possibly share my story with anyone else. I grew up in a home with a mother who was a rager, a compulsive overeater, a religious fanatic, a hypochondriac, a narcissist, and a militant perfectionist. Most of my life, I felt like she hated me. I could never do anything right or good enough. I felt like I was beaten and punished almost every day of my life until I was about 15 years old. She was often the one to beat me, usually using whatever pipe, belt, spoon, or implement was close to hand, but my dad was often dragged into it as a disciplinarian for her, her fall guy, so to speak, a classic codependent partner. She drove me absolutely crazy with her unmeetable demands, and when I resisted her dictates in the slightest, she constantly harped on me about what a selfish, evil, inadequate person I was, that she wished I'd never been born, and that she had never been born. How does a child even respond to this kind of treatment or attitude from a parent? Like most children, I internalized it. I believed her. I thought her mood and behavior really depended on my behavior. Who knew I was that powerful? I didn't even know I was that powerful. I just really came to believe that I was at fault for all the problems in her life. And if I could just be a better daughter, better sister, a better student, a better Catholic, the ultimate citizen in the world, that everything would be magically perfect and she would finally, finally love me. I did everything she told me, whether through fear of punishment or a desire to please her. It was never enough. In addition to having this dysfunctional mother, I was bullied in school all through my school years. I realized now that what was going on at home made me a target. I presented as a victim, even though I never asked anyone to help me or feel sorry for me because I didn't know my home life wasn't normal, even if I did not like my home life. The look on my face must have invited others to tease me and even physically hurt me. I rarely fought back because I knew if my mom find out, found out, she'd punish me even more. Between home and school, there was no safe place in my life. There were no safe people in my life. I didn't even have another adult to go to, whether a relative or neighbor or teacher, because I had bought into the lie of don't talk, don't tell, don't feel. What sort of lies did my family believe? Some of these lies were things like, we don't wash our dirty laundry in public. Good Catholic girls don't act like that. Or the kicker blanket statement, we are not that kind of a family. I'm sure you recognize some of these as your family lies. My way of not coping with having any safe place or people in my life was to go inside my head to create that safe place. I became a voracious reader and I read everything I could get my hands on. My family of origin had three sets of encyclopedias and I read them front to back every single volume three or four times over the years. I went to the library at least once a week and checked out a dozen books every week and read them all. The reading was the one thing that my mom encouraged. I don't really know why, but that was just about the only thing I ever did that was okay with her. I wrote stories to myself. I built fantasy worlds in my head and I plotted her maiming her death when I was trying to give myself some hope or comfort. 
I dreamed of the day when I would no longer have to live with her and could have my own home and my own autonomy. Once I told her my future dreams, minus the maiming part, and she angrily told me, you have it so good. You don't have to pay bills or anything. We do it all for you. And I looked at her silently and thought the price is too high for this kind of alleged freedom or luxury, the luxury of childhood. In those days, I would have rather lived in a dumpster than come home to the shrieking and punishment that went on every day for the smallest of infractions. Some of these infractions were often just part of being a kid. She took it as a personal affront if I tore my clothes when I was playing or if I even tripped and fell and scraped some part of my body. Really? I know now that I was just a normal kid. Yet she was trying to force me to be some perfect and silent automaton, performing on command and then shutting up and going away the rest of the time. Childhood for me was about so many kinds of violations and not always sexual. I was never allowed any privacy in my childhood home. We were not allowed to shut our bedroom or bathroom doors. We had our rooms tossed at least once a week by our mom. I don't know what she was looking for, but there was no privacy or hiding anything. She rummaged through it all. I had a diary for a short time. I had this, I was a writer and I had these big fantasies of being the glorious writer. But, you know, I quit writing it after a while because I realized she was opening a lock and getting into it and reading it because she would quote it back to me in a really sneering, nasty way. And the, it was such a betrayal. And I dare, I didn't dare respond to that nastiness because she would have called me a liar and punished me even more. There was no way to be honest or tell anyone about my childhood. I didn't think that anyone would believe me anyway. And my mother was always making me doubt my perceptions, feelings, and thoughts. I wrote tomes in my head about how I felt and what was happening to me as best I could understand it. But there was no real outlet for the pain and rage I felt because of my powerless and helplessness. Eventually, that rage emerged when I was an adult. And it did so through my addictions and self-abusive choices and behavior. Besides my perfectionistic mother's abuse of me and my siblings, I also had several relatives who were sexual abusers, primarily my mother's father. In addition to being a raging alcoholic, he was also a child molester. There's not one child in my mother's generation or in my generation that escaped his attention, male or female, no matter what age. This is very tragic and sad. We're talking about dozens of damaged people, maybe hundreds of damaged people because of this one person. This man was a cheater, a liar, a murderer, a rapist. He fathered illegitimate children and he drank and he had a suitcase full of prescription drugs he used. In a fit of rage, he even killed one of his own children with no consequences. He traveled all over the United States, allegedly visiting friends and relatives, but really he just had a circuit of victims he visited. He would stay at each location until things were good and hot from his molesting activities and then he'd move on to the next stop. This was a constant cycle over the, my childhood years. He mostly came to our home in the summer because the weather was nice. He and my grandmother lived in Arizona most of the year. And in the winter months, we'd go visit them in Phoenix. It was like we kids could never get away from this guy, ever. And no one ever talked about it. No cousins, aunts, uncles ever spoke about this during my childhood. He was such a threatening presence, we didn't dare. I never forgot what he did to me and what my mother did to me. And what some of my cousins did to me, sexually or otherwise, I do remember almost every day of my childhood and it was not a nice childhood. I perceived childhood as hell and I was determined to never have children. I think I held on to my memories as a desperate attempt for control. They could not make me forget or excuse what they had done to me, even if they forced me to be silent. I diligently did my best to avoid my mother's father's questionable intentions, even if it meant sacrificing a sister to him. The older I got though, the less he bothered me because I was too volatile too outspoken, too willing to be punished by my mom in order to not have to submit to him. 
I spent more time screaming and crying and acting out than my sisters. And I think he realized I would probably tell on him eventually. And I actually did at age 16. One summer evening when he did the usual evening rounds of kissing the grandkids goodnight before they went to sleep, I resisted him as always when he tried to kiss me and shove his tongue in my mouth while putting his hands under the sheets and trying to jam fingers into my groin <clears throat> while pinching my breasts through the blankets that I had frantically pinned tightly to my sides with my arms. I screamed and yelled and fussed and finally he walked off shouting that I was being a jerk because I wouldn't kiss him goodnight. The next day, my mom cornered me in front of all my sisters and threatened to beat the shit out of me for what she called disrespectful and disobedient behavior. I boldly told her that her father was sticking his tongue in my mouth and trying to stick his hands on my underwear and that he did it to me every night and to my sisters every night when he put us to bed. My mother's response to that statement was to hit me hard in the face. And then she told me that I was a liar and a whore to say such good things about him. I was 16 years old. I was still technically a virgin. My younger sisters, quiet as mice, all five of them watched this interchange. We all got the message. Don't tell, don't talk, don't feel, or you might be beat or worse. When I left home to go to college, I was free for the first time in my life. Thankfully, my mother's father died a few weeks before school started, and I breathed a sigh of relief that the fucker was gone. It could no longer harm my sisters and me. At college, I immediately commenced partying and chasing after men. I had many inappropriate relationships where I always got hurt because I gave them everything and they took it all and left. I acted in ways that others, especially my mother, considered crazy. I had never had to self-regulate before in my life because my mother had always told me what to do and how to feel and how to behave and what my chores were and what her expectations were and what the rules were. And now that I was out of the house, I could at long last at 18 years old, finally determine all that for myself. But I didn't know how. I just basically ran in all directions at once, trying everything, often to my detriment. I rapidly became an alcoholic and gained a lot of weight. The first Christmas I went home to visit my family, my mother was horrified by my weight gain and the, my puffy bloated appearance from drinking and promptly put me on a diet, refusing to have alcohol in her house. And all the while she continued her lifelong campaign to make me feel like I was still an evil bad person for even doing these sorts of things or even considering doing them. The constant refrain I heard now was, that's not how we raised you. And even when I told her that, that I knew that wasn't how she raised me, but that I was choosing my own way, she was just absolutely outraged at my temerity and finally developing a personality and a backbone, along with food and alcohol addictions. She questioned me about my sex life, my drinking behavior, and other college activities. And me, not knowing I didn't have to answer her, told her all. And then she used that information to emotionally batter me even more. Even as an adult, I was still a piece of shit to her. She could just look at me. My sisters and I called it the evil eye or the hairy eyeball when we were kids. She could just look at me. I'd be devastated for weeks by that look. And if she opened her mouth along with the look, oh my God, the aftermath was even worse. <clears throat> I was in college seven years. I earned a couple degrees while indulging in and creating a lot of drinking and craziness. I always felt the same, but didn't know what to do about it. I was famous in my family for my foul mouth my tantrums, my volatile moods. I knew on some level that I needed help, but my family had instilled in me such a sense of shame about not only talking or not talking or telling, but that those who saw any sort of medical or other kind of intervention from counseling, drugs, or like cops were crazy people who should be locked up. There was always this unspoken threat of being abandoned or disowned if you told. I just couldn't bring myself to do anything to help myself. 
the fear was so incredibly great. And I, re I remember standing in front of the student health clinic one day with my fist balled up crying, tears running down my face, looking at the front door of the clinic. And I desperately wanted to go in and tell them what was wrong with me and ask them to help me and tell them how I felt. But I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. I walked away and I went to the bar again and went and got drunk again. And I found a guy to take home again. And then I binged my face off the next morning, loathing myself for the drinking and the sex again. It was a terrible cycle that went on until I sobered up. The church didn't help either. I was raised Catholic and I don't know how it was for other Catholics, but my experience of Catholicism and God was basically identical to my relationship with my mother. God hated me. I was bad. I must be punished. I could never do anything right in the church either. The church was constantly telling me how bad I was and that there was no hope for me at all while telling me what I should be doing. And even when I attempted to do whatever they were telling me to do, I was still wrong. I was still bad. I was still evil. Eventually, I gave up trying to please either my mother or the church, except for sporadic attempts to toe the line. I could never do it for long because I felt even worse doing what they wanted me to do. I would then do nothing at all except well, wallow in my own misery and alcoholism. The church and her priest and my mother all seemed like the worst kind of bullies. They all insisted they knew what was right for me and insisted I do it. As you can imagine, this kind of stuff really messes up your head, as if mine wasn't messed up enough already. And in all of this, I didn't ever see God. People yelped about God all the time in my life. They read the Bible, prayed, did service, taught religious ed classes, cooked the priest's meals, went on missions, had vocations, whatever. I didn't get it. I would sit in church services and watch other people praying, sitting, standing, kneeling, singing, praising, serving, whatever. And I didn't get it. On the other hand, though, at church, though, I could see that there was something going on with other people that gave them peace and comfort and inspiration. But I didn't see it or feel it. I didn't know what it was. Intellectually, I figured there was a God out there somewhere. But, you know, but that God didn't have anything to do with me. I mean, what kind of God lets children be harmed the way my sisters and they were harmed? You know, I think I really believe God existed on some level because the world was well, way too well-ordered and wonderful to be an accident. There had to be some sort of higher intelligence involved, but I didn't really know what that intelligence had to do with me. So I sobered up from alcohol on December 29th, 2003. That's a long story for another program. But when I was first in recovery in AA, I was really held up by this idea of God. When I went to meetings and saw the 12 steps on the walls, and I wonder, and so how so many of them referred to God, I was sh just shake my head. This will never work, I thought, because I didn't really believe in God. I knew he existed, as I mentioned just a moment ago, but that had nothing to do with me. God was always a punishing factor in my life, a scorekeeper, disciplinarian, a dammer, and I didn't want anything to do with that. So along the way, though, I worked the steps, you know, ended up having a spiritual experience when I did my fifth step, got in touch with the higher power of my understanding, and the way I understood God was as unconditional love. Um, and that was just amazing to me that I could actually, you know, decide what I felt God was instead of having to accept someone else's, you know, conception of that. And, you know, the spiritual experience I had when I did my um, sixth and seventh step never went away. You know, that happened in July of 2004. And my higher power has been present ever since. And I, I know now that he was always there. I just hadn't been opening the door. I wasn't acknowledging him. I wasn't inviting him in but he's here now. Um, I came to ACA in July of 2008. So I was about five years sober, but I was feeling pretty dry spiritually. Something was missing. I kept working the AA program and working with others and waiting and watching for what was next. I knew there had to be something coming next just from my own, my own spiritual journey, but I didn't know what was coming. 
I was first exposed to the idea of being an adult child in the early 90s when I was in counseling for the first time after my first marriage broke up. I was drinking heavily and I wasn't sleeping well and I had profound depression and involved and I was also involved with a really inappropriate person at that time. And I'd gone to the doctor to ask for help with sleeping. And after she quizzed me for a bit, she determined I was depressed and probably had been most of my life. Duh. And I didn't know though that I could be treated for depression. So she tried me on a whole bunch of antidepressants. And in the course of trying antidepressants and all the crazy that comes with being on different ones, she made me go to counseling. Um, and I never had counseling before. And I and I sat in the office of my counselor and told him all kinds of stuff and just cried my face off. And, and anyway, over the course of the, of the counseling, he finally suggested that I might go to a class on codependency um, that was offered by the hospital where I was going to counseling at. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, just go. So anyway, I go to this class. It was one of those things where you probably went for two hours once a week for six weeks and they taught you all about codependency. I mean, that was a long time ago, so I don't remember much. But I do remember this. I sat in this class and I listened to the leader tell us about what codependency was and what caused it and the types of codependence. And I realized with quite a bit of horror that he was describing my mother. The leader told us while writing these various types of codependence on a piece of paper on the wall that codependency was generally caused by alcoholism or substance abuse. And I was like, um, my mother was not a drinker and she never allowed my father to drink. And so I was really puzzled by this. And I finally raised my hand and asked the guy, you know, how you're describing my mother, but she's not a drinker. And the leader looked at me for a minute and he's like, well, um, did your, her parents drink? And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, they were the violent gun waving, fighting, shouting, break up the house type of alcoholics and beat the crap out of each other and their kids. Anyway, he said, well, you know what? Your mom's an alcoholic then. She has all the behaviors and one of the dysfunction even though she doesn't drink because she was raised by alcoholics. She's basically a non-drinking alcoholic. And I was just kind of stunned by that. My mom is an alcoholic, even though she doesn't drink, really? And he then, here's the key part. He said, you are an adult child, which means you're a survivor of growing up in an alcoholic home. I would suggest you read Melody Beatty's books on codependency to learn more about this. So on the way home from class that night, I stopped at a bookstore and bought every Melody Beatty book I could find, and I read them all. And I didn't get it. I really didn't understand what this codependency thing had to do with me and what God had to do with me and all this stuff. Anyway, nobody ever offered me any other solutions at that time. They just told me what I was and I went to counseling. And even when the class was over and I did counseling for decades after that, but you know, and I, I dealt with some childhood stuff a little bit like the incest and stuff, but overall I really didn't make a whole lot of progress other than just having a place to vent. Um, until 2008 though, I didn't really think much about the whole idea of being an adult child again. I went on to live my life to have a child, to sober up in 2003, um, to remarry in 2007. My alcoholism had finally progressed so profoundly that my family did an intervention on me in 2003. Anyway, let's get back to when I got to ACA. So I was five years sober and I was working with a newly sober woman. And after weeks of reading the AA big book and talking and, and trying to get her to work the steps and stuff, she finally just said, you know, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I do know that I'm an adult child. And I just I kind of looked at her for a minute and thought I, she was being the usual newly recovering drunk who's saying, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, I don't know whatever his problem is, because I did that when I was in for early recovery. And then after, after I thought about it, her, she, her words kind of sunk in, and I said to her, you know, someone once told me that I was an adult child. I don't even really know what that means. Do you want to check it out together? And she's like, sure. So I went online thinking I was going to have to get a bunch more Melody Baby books and read them again. And I discovered there was a 12-step program for adult children. And it was ACA. 
And I was like, oh, this is interesting because I was all about recovery, you know. So I searched around the ACH site, discovered they just published their fellowship text a couple of years before in like 2006, even though the program had been in existence since 78. And there appeared to be meetings everywhere, but there were none in my area. Um, I did find a list of phone meetings, though, and I was pretty excited about that. But the only thing I did that day was order two red books. About a week later, I got the books in the mail. I gave one to my sponsee, and I sat down and started reading the other one. And it literally tore the top off my head. From the very first page, this book described me, my life, my problems, my parents, especially my mother. I was shocked to realize I had all the traits. It's not that it was shocking that I had these traits. I already knew what my dysfunctional behavior was. What was shocking is that somebody else knew about it and that they put it in words. I thought I was the only one. When my husband got home from work that night after dinner, I said, you got to listen to this book I'm reading. It's real interesting. Raise your hand if any of this applies to you. And I slowly read him the traits. And I raised my hand for each one. And he raised his hand for probably 10 of them. And then stated he'd probably had all, all of them when he got sober 15 years earlier. And I just sat there and looked at the book. And I looked at him and thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do? <sighs> so the very next day, I went to my first phone meeting. I was only working part-time at that time in my life, so I could go to meetings just about any time. And in my first meeting, I found you guys, my true family. Oh my God, it was so exciting. I heard all of you talking about all the same things I'd gone through, same feelings, the same abuse. You had the same perceptions of what had happened to you. And your parents had often told you that you didn't know what you were talking about. You didn't know what was going on. You didn't perceive things correctly. You were too sensitive. You were too selfish and all that crap they tell us. You know the drill. I, I cried through that entire meeting and many, many others after that. I spent the next two months reading the book. It took me a long time because I had to take breaks periodically because I was so overwhelmed by the amount of information I was taking in, the vocabulary I was learning, the validation I was receiving, and the amount of bodily and mental pain I was experiencing. I kept a notebook by my side and I wrote down page numbers, paragraphs, with documenting all my body responses, the thoughts that came in my head, the pains, twinges, cramps, or aches I felt every time I read something. Um, I slept a lot and the first, you know, the first couple of weeks, there was a few weeks there. I didn't even leave the house hardly. And I slept almost around the clock because I was just overwhelmed by what I was learning. I decided to read the whole book before I attempted the program. I didn't have anybody locally to show me how to do it. And I wanted to understand the scope of the program. And as you can imagine, despite going to meetings and talking to people from other places a little bit, I was pretty overwhelmed. But eventually I found someone to work with me, a fellow traveler in Illinois. And I started writing and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and worked the steps. You know, when I did my family tree, that was one of the most enlightening things I've ever done in my life. For some reason, I thought that I was an alcoholic and a bad person in a vacuum. The truth is, my family tree is stuffed. I mean, absolutely crammed with generations of alcoholics and addicts, sex addicts, overeaters, religious freaks, thieves, narcissists, child molesters, rapists, murderers, all sorts of craziness and trauma. And I'd never seen it in this light before. You know, when I was a kid, they always told stories about, you know, oh, that's just Uncle John, wink, wink, would he do twist off with some craziness with drinking or women or whatever. And we all thought that was just like, you know, cute stories you told about your drunk old relatives. You know what? Those stories were, and those relatives were not normal. Those people had problems. They were very dysfunctional and damaging. It wasn't a wink, wink kind of thing. There was total fucked up chaos in my family tree. It was, it was so enlightening to me to, to see that and to realize that I could not have turned out any way that I turned out because nobody had anything normal to pass on. Everybody was screwed up. When I did that triangle thing in the book where they talk about um, 
I can't remember which page that was on, but there was that triangle thing. There was like three things on it about the things that go on in your family. And I had all of them in my mom. I was just so overwhelmed by that. I just felt like I never had a chance that there wasn't one ounce of wiggle for me to become a normal person as an adult. You know, my experience of God started to shift in my ACA recovery too. I really began to understand really more clearly than ever that the God of my childhood was my mother. They were identical. They both were punishing, judgmental, and damning. It, that was something that kind of shocked me too, because I'd really never seen it so clearly. But ACA helped me separate those two really well in my mind. And it was much easier, even after five years of recovery, to fully embrace that relationship with this, with the higher power of my recovery. And when my mother passed away in 2010, I would rejoiced because the God of my childhood was dead at last. Speaking of my mother, my relationship with her remained fraught throughout my recovery and all the rest of her life. When I went into ACA, I knew she heard about it eventually from one of my sisters um, who'd been quizzing me about it. And she and my dad became pretty reserved in their interactions with me. It was almost like they were afraid to talk to me. Like, what did they think I was going to do? I, th I suspect they think I was going to go after them or attack them. That was the kind of thing I did when I was still drinking. Um, but I never said a word to them about being an ACA or what I was working on. I know my mom had some familiarity with ACA from her own counseling, and she went to an ACA-like group for a few years in my mid-30s before I got sober, and that was a period of my life that was the only time I got along with her, and she was in recovery, but she didn't understand the disease model of addiction and codependency and stuff. She thought she was cured at some point, and she stopped going or getting any help with that. And she became a worse codependent than she'd ever been. So much more profoundly worse than even my sisters who are not in recovery commented on it. About two years before my mother passed, I pretty much ceased having any contact with her because I came to the realization one day that every time I spoke to her, I would binge for days afterwards. I used to drink that way over her, but when I stopped drinking, the food problem became more prominent. I decided I didn't want to binge anymore, so I stopped talking to her. I started skipping most family events, and if I had to go one to one, I would stay away from her. By going no contact, I started to make much better progress in my recovery. Better meeting, less crying, more meetings, better sleep, less migraines, more writing, more working with others, more being worked with, you know, just an all around upward spiral of being a better person and a more sober person in all ways. And my life was becoming pretty good despite the fact I was in a really crazy marriage and I also had a teenage daughter. Um, you know, at the time I broke contacts with my mom, my mom was actually dying from cancer at the time. And my sisters were really on my ass about it. They were really mad at me for breaking ties with her. And they said, I had to make peace with her. And I had to make amends to her. And I just told them, you know, I've tried. I've tried to give, make my amends to her. She acts like I'm not in the room when I talk about it. You know, I've tried to have um, ask for a normal relationship with her. And, and she can see I'm different, but she won't do it. And so I had to let it go. And they were really outraged by that. But they didn't get it. And they didn't have to. It only mattered to me because I was finally taking care of myself. I've never, ever regretted that decision to go no contact. My mom has been gone almost 11 years, and I've grieved her very little, mostly grieving what might have been if she could have become the least bit willing. Let me say that again. I've never regretted cutting contact with my mother. It was the best thing I could have ever done for myself. Um, you know, I, um, my husband and daughter at that time were, really didn't understand why I didn't want anything to do with my mother even though they were starting to get some understanding of the AC program. The only event that we did go to uh, during that time that was significant before my mom died was one of my nephew's weddings. I didn't want to go to this wedding and they insisted I had to go. Um, and so I finally agreed, but I said, you know, 
on, as we were driving to the wedding, which was like five hours away, I said, you got to pay attention to this. I'm going to tell you how my mom's going to act at this event. And I want you to look at her public face and then see how she's treating me if you're looking really closely. And they, they really thought I was full of crap, but they said they would pay attention. And you know what? I, she did exactly to, to the word, to the hand gesture, what I told them she was going to do to me. And they were pretty startled by that. They suddenly realized what I've been going through all these years is she was always secretly bullying me and saying these subtle shitty things. And she still was doing all the mannerisms and the hairy eyeball and all that stuff that would just make me feel so bad. Even in my forties, even after all these years of recovery, you know, I think my husband and my daughter were a little shocked to understand that. Going to the wedding though, was a good thing. It was a real turning point for my, me and my recovery for one thing two things happened. One is I promised my inner children that, that they would they would never have to talk to her or be around her ever again. And also the night after the wedding, I dreamed of an inner child that I'd never seen before. And this one was a tiny baby, maybe three or four months old. And it was near death. It was kind of a green color. It was really weak and it could hardly cry and it would not drink the bottle I tried to offer it. I held it really close to me in the dream. And then I realized the baby was a girl. And I tucked her inside my shirt against my skin. I was trying to warm her and rock her, singing and praying that she would live, praying I could do the right thing for her, asking my higher power to help me. When I awoke the next morning from this vivid dream, I wrote it down. And then I realized it was one of my little kids who was pre-verbal and could not communicate with me except through a dream. She, that's how she found a way to reach out to me, you know. Um, and I know I was molested as a baby because um, I've had people tell me about it and, you know, pretty horrible to think about being molested when you're three months old and I'm sure that that little child that I saw in the dream was her you know I never had a chance you know I've dreamed of that baby many times since that first dream her name is Suzanne yes my inner children have names there's good news about the baby though baby Suzanne's about three now and when I see her in my dream she is a fat happy toddler in a pink snowsuit laughing her blonde hair's flying she's running through snowdrifts and she's full of joy that she is loved and cherished at last. So let's talk about inner children for a moment. I do have inner children. I have more than one. Not everybody does, but I, for some reason, I seem to have a whole herd of them. Um, the first one I got in touch with actually was about nine years old. Her name is Suzanne too. And I found her the first time I did a non-dominant handwriting exercise. She's probably one of the happiest of them. Maybe that's why I heard from her first or that maybe she felt safest with me. I don't know. But the question I asked her in the non-dominant handwriting was, why won't you talk to me? And she said, you're not safe. You heard us and you don't do what you say you will do. I was really shocked and startled and shamed to realize that I've been ignoring them, myself, all of my life. They've been trying to tell me all my life that, this was, that things that were going on were wrong. And that's where all this crazy behavior came from. It was them. It was them. And I didn't know it. I just thought I was nuts, you know, but I didn't understand it. I didn't see it. So I promised this little nine-year-old me that I was going to become and remain trustworthy, safe, and loving. And I have. I always have. Next, I heard from a five-year-old. Her name is Susie. Um, she, I hate that nickname. I don't know why. I think it's something that my mother's father must have called me. But she was a pretty sad little girl. You know, it was, it was the beginning of the bullying, you know. Then an 18-year-old one emerged, and her name is Sue. Um, she was she was a pretty happy one because she was always dancing and singing because she got away from home. Then the one of the latter ones that showed up was a 12-year-old, and she is the most powerful and angry of all my inner children. Her name is Anastasia. She always wanted to have my great-grandmother's middle name as her name, so that's why her name's Anastasia. 
And Anastasia was absolutely furious at me for not noticing her before this and not protecting her all these years. And it actually took her years to communicate with me. Most of the early communication consisted of her flipping me off and making faces at me. She wouldn't even talk to me. She was so bad. And, and you know, it sounds awful, but that's exactly the kind of kid I was at 13, except I didn't flip people off because my mom would have peeled the skin off my head. But that's how I felt in my mind, you know. Anyway, I also have adult, adult, adult children, inner children. I had I mentioned the eight-year-old named Sue, who was so happy because she was free and out of the house. Um, I also have a 25-year-old. Her name is Mrs. Sly, and she is named after my first husband's nickname. And she came into being sometime after I married that person because I realized what a big mistake I'd made in marrying that person. And there's another adult child um, who, who's about from when I'm 31. Her name is Mama Sue. I became a mother at 31. And that child is still terrified that because she's responsible for a baby that she has no idea what to do with. And I, I remember her sitting on the couch crying and crying when we got home from the hospital thinking this is a huge mistake and I'm probably going to end up going to jail because I don't know what to do with this baby. I did just fine. I actually really did know how to take care of babies. But you know, when you're, it's all new and fresh, you're like, ah. Anyway, the last inner child that emerged is about 44. And she emerged in the middle of my second marriage. That relationship was a whole bunch of crazy. That's, that's a story for another day. But it really challenged my identity and my financial security, my life. And, and it even challenged my sobriety at the end. It was pretty scary. Um, I had to leave because I didn't want to drink. And her name is Rachel. And her name came from a fictional character from a book I wrote about my ex and his life. That character in the book did represent me. And that inner child took on that name. Rachel is a very sad and broken woman. Her dreams have been betrayed once again. And the last of her innocence was gone, recklessly stolen by my lying second husband. Anyway, there's so many things I'd love to talk about tonight. There were joyful revelations and learning experiences for me. Just having the vocabulary to talk about what happened finally was amazing to me. And having explanations for things like the bundling of feelings helped me understand why even now when I'm angry, I cry. Um, it's, there's that confusion they talk about with the bundling of feelings. You know, I finally understood why I spent so many years living in fantasies about my mom dying or fearing being abandoned by others or fearing homelessness. All of that was explained by the concept of the inner drugstore. I was hitting that drugstore almost every day for a fix before I came to ACA because I got off on it. I got off on the fear and the sadness and the rage. I mean, I was addicted to my own emotions and the crazy scenarios and the drama. And most of it wasn't real except for when I got the hit, when I took one of those out and took it, you know. Um, you know, I also learned stuff like, why did I get so mad at my husband when he came home late from work and there was no reason to be? When I wrote about that feeling and drilled down into it and unpacked it and discovered my mom's rage when my dad would get home late from work or not, she didn't get, he didn't get home the minute she thought he ought to be. And then she would just go ape shit on him. And there's a part of me that thought that's how you act when your husband's late. I mean, what kind of crazy stuff is that? But I didn't even remember it as that way until I worked on it, you know? I love the guided imagery um, of the package of dysfunction that's talked about in the book where they're passing the package down through the generations. And then when it gets to you, you're encouraged to put it down and walk away, happy, joyous, and free. I love that. Finally, I had permission to put that shit down and walk away from it. Because sometimes I always felt like I was pulling a triple trailer of crap with me, my own history, everybody else's history. You know, it was just, it was a delight to leave that stuff behind me. Affirmations were very important to me to change my thinking, to silence the critical parent, to give voice to the loving parent, and eventually my true self. 
Even now I carry little packs of handwritten affirmation cards with me, like three by five cards to read throughout the day for things and concepts that I want to change or accept. It sounds dumb talking to yourself, but I assure you it works. The red book is packed with so many amazing tools, examples, ideas. The inventories are so incredibly freeing. There is so much power in calling our past and our hurts into the light to be dissipated by our higher powers, love and our newly learned skills of parenting ourselves. A few thoughts that I'd like to leave you with. If you have not accepted yet that you have an incurable condition as an adult child, and that the only way to be free from that is to be is to actively work your recovery and to work with others, you are shortchanging yourself and you will eventually be in danger of losing any recovery you might've achieved. The disease of codependency is as powerful as any other addiction I've had, and I've got a few. I don't want to suffer from it any longer, and I don't want the people around me to suffer from it. So I encourage you to commit yourself to the program unreservedly if you haven't. You will reap the benefits of clarity and sanity. And to be gentle with yourself. The book has all this stuff. They talk about gentleness breaks all the time. And when I first read that stuff, I thought it was bats. But you know what? It makes total sense. we got to be gentle with ourselves. We've got to give ourselves time and space to heal. I once heard a guy in an ACA meeting talk about the math of what he called trauma strikes. So remember earlier when I said I felt like I was punished almost every day of the first 15 years of my life? Well, if you take 365 days times one punishment a day times 15 years, that comes out to 5,475 incidents that harm me as a child. And believe me, that's a conservative estimate. My point is, I did not get over all that hurt in one day or even in 10 years. I have to keep working at it one day at a time. The integration of my inner children has also been a really joyous development for me. I'm no longer fragmented. I'm no longer living in a mind and body that are inhabited by warring, damaged children. In early ACA recovery, it was like herding cats to get dressed in the morning, to go to work, to do anything. Um, but eventually I learned how to negotiate with them and how to parent them, starting and stopping healing. And eventually we became one. And I can't even tell you exactly how it happened. We just did. You know, once each one of them got some healing and felt like they'd been heard, they became part of me and they rarely break out anymore. Um, but usually not necessarily a negative thing. They've just got something to tell me that they want to make sure I hear, you know, it was, it's been a joy to become my true self, the true self I always knew I was, but I had no idea how to access, no idea how to get there, no idea how to shuck off all this crap I'd grown up with, but ACA helped me do that. It's amazing to be that person. I'm no longer afraid of people so much. And I'm not afraid to be who I am, to have boundaries, to speak my mind tactfully, of course, and just to be who I am. I don't have to fear being punished or abandoned because of it, because. Uh thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. It was wonderful. Thank you, Suzanne. Right. You're very welcome. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, Susan. Anyway, thanks for letting me speak to you guys this evening.